This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Jolly Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Barrett. This podcast is for those who are interested in the conversation around diversity, inclusion, and equity. Each week, I'll be interviewing a guest who has something special to share or is actively part of building solutions in this space. Let's get started. This episode includes some highlights from interviews I have had with four awesome people. So I'm just going to give you little snippets. If you haven't um, listened to the entire episode, I would encourage you to do so. Um, But these are some phenomenal folks. And I just wanted to reemphasize some of the things that they were saying. Monique Nelson, Chair and Chief Executive Officer at UWG. She is one powerful woman who has demonstrated her expertise in the industry, marketing and advertising, but also focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, very socially conscious, and a strong business professional, amongst other things. She has a whirlwind of other things that she's doing, but I just wanted you to hear from her. Yeah. So, um, so then I uh, came, you know, came back stateside and um, worked on Rocker, which was, you know, the first um, cell phone with, with music in it. So it was really kind of the first, you know, iPhone in so many, in so many iterations. And that was an awesome experience. And then um, point in my life where it was just like, Hey, you know, you're, you got to go home at some point. Um, I'm an only child moved back to the city. Um, Motorola did not have a facility out here that was, you know, hosting marketing or otherwise. So it was time to move to something else. And um, I spent probably a a little under a year, you know, looking for an opportunity in New York and um, ended up interviewing at Uniworld in the fall of 2006 and fell in love with Byron Lewis, the founder. And I was, um, I joined them in February, 2007. And I worked at Uniworld and um, in different departments, joined as kind of integrated marketing and brand entertainment, as well as being an account director. And uh, just did a a bunch of things within the agency, but most importantly, wanting to make sure that they were digital first. Because of course, having come from this world, I'm like, you know what? Having seen the rest of the world, marketing is no longer (laughs) going to live in these three places, right? TV, radio, and print. This little thing that, you know, are are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. (laughs) 
um, and more powerful is really where, you know, this industry is going. And uh, thankfully, you know, um, Byron really valued that, valued my vision around that. And uh, I started to, you know, you know, get more and more departments that I was, you know, working in. And in 2010, we had a real conversation about what my future would be with the organization. And in that conversation, it came up that I want to, you know, succeed him. And in order to succeed him, that means I had to buy the controlling stake of, uh, of Unroll Group. And I made two phone calls. I called my parents. And I asked them, what do you think about us buying an advertising agency? And they were like, sure, why not? And I made another phone call, which was to my boyfriend, who is now my husband. And I said, hey, what do you think if I buy an advertising agency? He said, sounds good to me. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Went back to Byron and said, all right, um, let's do it. And it took the, took the better part of a year and a half to uh, figure out how to do that because I had no idea how to buy an advertising agency. <laughs> so crash course in acquisition, um, you know, investments, you know, talking to, you know, no less than, you know, 300 meetings, right? Just what do I do? Who do I talk to? What, you know, how do I get this done? I mean, it was just, you know, consultants and bankers and lawyers and it was uh, quite a journey. But by May of 2012, we closed and uh, I have now been the chair and CEO of Uniworld since um, May of 2012. Wow, what a great story. That is phenomenal. Allyship, but, um, but yeah, I mean, allyship is, is critical. And, and part of the safe space is to kind of continue that open dialogue and allowing people to express themselves as we go through this uncomfortable transition. This is stuff we've never talked about at work. We are now all of a sudden telling black people, gay people, Hispanic, Asian, whatever you are, to now be vulnerable in a place that you were told forever to never show your emotions. Right. And now we have to create a space where that has to stay. Right. You can't tell people to come out of their shell and then go, psych. Right. Like, we, we can't. <laughs> right. We just told every person of color to pour their heart out. Yeah. Right? Most places, at least the places that I, I've worked with. Yeah. So you can't stop now. You can't. I think there's that level of trust, right? Yes, that it has to be there. And I am finding that more and more allies are so engaged in that part because that's the that's where some that's where the community is gonna build, right? Because that's where you're gonna hear the truth. Right. The truth is so important in this moment, and it doesn't mean an indictment. But it is a truth about this is still a challenge. No, it's not fixed yet. No, this is what I need from you. And that's really important. And we have to keep that part going. That's what's going to carry us through this, is the fact that people will continue to be able to be honest and express themselves. And I mean, not everywhere all the time. That's why it's called the safe space. Not at every meeting. (laughs) Not every meeting, right? But it's the meeting that you can actually go and say, this is still a little messed up, right? Or somebody still hurt my feelings this week or whatever, right? And and how can I become a better, you know, a version of myself? And I'm finding organizations doing great work, um, you know, super proud of my partner um, at WPP, who's really been putting these, you know, micro learning sessions together. 
you know, and we've been, you know, happy to participate and put, you know, anti-racism, you know, training together and, you know, a place to talk about race and people learning a bit about where this all came from and that we can dismantle something that was, you know, a figment, right? A myth, right? This is all built on a myth. So, you know, we have to go in and deconstruct that myth, but we got to know where it came from. But it's, you know, most of the time I'm seeing more allies, you know, showing up in that space, willing to lean in, which is the part that, again, I I think was probably missing on so many levels the last go round or, you know, it was there, but then it was lost somewhere in between. But we're kind of all in this together. And it's important that we all kind of understand where we came from so that we can do a real comprehensive fix. Rhodesia Ransom, another amazing individual. At the time I interviewed her, she was running for county supervisor. And you know, sometimes when you think you want a position and you realize there's something bigger out there for you, she is now working in Congressman Harder's office and doing amazing work um, in everything she does. So I'm excited to bring some snippets from her interview as well. Absolutely. Um, Yes, there's so much happening since the George Floyd Floyd killing. I really feel like it's given people an opportunity to breathe and a freedom to really just say, look, this is what we've been dealing with for a long time when it become, when it comes to racism and injustice. And it's not that we've never seen it before. It's not that we've never seen a film. We've seen films before, but you've never seen one quite like that. You've never seen one that just kind of hits you in a place where you're just saying, you know what? I cannot be silent about things. I cannot ignore certain things. I cannot allow people to make comments and, you know, we just can't leave people in their ignorance anymore. And what I appreciate about this moment in time is it's not just black people, you know, representing, Hey, we want justice. It's not just brown people, but it's everyone. And it's very reminiscent of kind of the civil rights movement. When you look at pictures of Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, that movement, it was not just black people in that fight for civil rights it really takes people to come together to say, we're done, enough is enough. And and I really think that this is a moment in time that I feel like every generation has a moment in time. Um, I don't even feel like this moment belongs to my generation. I feel like this moment belongs to my children's generation as they have been, uh, they've been at the forefront of different protests. And when you look at a community such as Tracy, where things are relatively peaceful, but we know that there are stories here. There are stories, we live here. We've heard some of the stories. We've seen, you know, there was a play once called uh, Being Black and Tracy, and it was very educational. Um, And we know that there was the National Socialist White People's Party that was here in Tracy at one point. And we we know that um, people have had some experiences. And so this moment in time, once this happened and and 600 people show up at a protest there were at least five protests that i know of that i participated in to go and and just you know my kids went and just to see people talk about their different experiences and it's not okay so to we need to one give them an opportunity and a platform to 
express what they've been through. But then as people of governance who are charged with, you know, setting the rules, making the policy and honestly, quality of life, this is a big quality of life thing. When you have young people saying, this happened to me in school in the city that you are a leader in, you know, or, you know, we were one and they said, well, who's in charge of the police? And I said, well, actually I'm in charge of the police. So what's your, what's your concern? You know, what's your problem? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, we are very fortunate that our police department has done very well as far as, you know, going out and engaging the community. But that did mean that to some other folks, um, they were saying, well, Yes, that's your experience, but don't discount my experience. And we cannot do that. Right. So one of the things that um, has come out of this, in addition to us really trying to give not just young people, but anyone a platform to, you know, express what they were feeling and what their needs are. My question is always like, what is your demands, right? If you're going to protest, you're going to need to have, what are your demands? I need to know what they are. <laughs> and and right. at the end of the day. Because we need to hold you accountable, right? Yeah, so. tell, me, tell me what you are holding <laughs> yeah. accountable to. What are you asking for me? And what I found is really people just want to know that they can trust, they can feel safe. They can feel safe when their kids go out. The young people want to feel like they can be treated equal. and so. After what, a few protests, 500, 300, I think the smallest one was like 100 people um, at a candlelight vigil. And really what we had to do is go back and myself and other council members, myself and and one council member, Ariola and I, we wrote a a policy proposal that was just recently adopted called the Equity and Empowerment Initiative. And the purpose of that was to do an assessment of our community. One, we need to acknowledge that everyone's experience in our community is not the same. Acknowledge some past things that have happened and then make a commitment, a value statement that says we value equity and diversity here in our community. Our staff did an awesome job. We gave them, we said, you need to come back with a a value statement, a resolution. We gave them the key points and they actually came back with a very comprehensive resolution for Black Lives Matter, um, which a year ago, you could never get anyone to say that in the city council chambers, let alone right. get five people to vote yes on adopting uh, that policy. And it was important, um, especially after his listening to a lot of the um, Hispanic community here, to include them in, in this yes. initiative. Um, so we put that in there. And then myself and Councilman Ariola, we wrote the empowerment initiative to look at our budget and how we're spending money and how we can actually make sure that you know, when our police are out there doing work, they've already told us, hey, it's not my job to solve homelessness. I am not a social worker. Don't make me go and arrest homeless people and violate their rights, right? So, right. so we uh, we looked at this initiative as a way to um, not just make a value statement, but to make sure that when it came to, comes to race, sex, gender, you know, sexual orientation, uh, we have women, you know, working in our city and they need to be able to know that, hey, they have the same opportunities as men and black people need to know they have the same opportunities as white people. So we need to make sure that our departments, not just the city departments, but people we give money to through MOUs and contracts and vendors, if you're going to work with our city, you're going to value equity and diversity because it's required before we're going to work with you. So, but basically my point is, is that we don't want to just talk about, you know, equity and empowerment. We want to make sure that 
when it comes to the policies in our community, the systems that people can know that we mean business when we say that we're a place that values equity um, and that we value justice and that you can be safe with us. Our police department, they actually agreed. Even before we even had the conversation, our police chief was on top of it. He'd already um, made some moves to take out you know, one of the chokeholds. I can't pronounce that chokehold, but he'd already making a, a, a move to take it out. Uh, we talked about, you know, they're going to increase their training to make sure that there is a professional courage. There's already a, a duty to intercede for our police department, but we want to give them the support in the proper training and knowing that this is how you intervene with your coworker and they should feel safe doing that with one another. So there's training that they're going to go through. There's actually a history of policing that, you know, new recruits are going to learn about like the history of policing and where it started and, and where it should go, at least in our city. So that's, yeah. <laughs> that's how. That's, that's a lot of work. That's great. That is a lot that's of work fabulous. in a short amount of time. <laughs> and, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, I'm probably making it sound really easy, but there, believe it or not, there are people who are opposed and they just don't see that you can value you can value justice, you can be anti-racist, and you can still support and work with your police department. For some reason, and I think it's very divisive, people want to pretend or they articulate that the two are, you know, don't go together. They're not mutually exclusive concepts. <laughs> so. Right, right, exactly. D. Miller, talk about an expert in product inclusion. This is a woman who has so much more to give when it comes to innovation and helping companies reach the potential that they have to deliver equity in the marketplace as they're developing new products. Um, Dee Miller currently works at Visa um, and has just been doing amazing things as well. So here's some snippets from her interview. I think users should be giving feedback on a continuous basis and asking for the ability to have that uh, a mechanism to provide feedback. I think that that's where it, it becomes an. I mean, for consumers, consumers like to talk, right? They like to give feedback. They like to give reviews. Well, usually it's like you either like it or you hate <laughs> it, right? <laughs> If you're like in the middle, you're probably not going to give a review. <laughs> That's fair. You won't intentionally give a review. However, <laughs> if you if you if companies and people and consumers together, like if, if a consumer says, I want a forum to talk in, I think that is what needs to happen. Right. You need to be looking at I think one of the examples I like so far is I'm on the app Clubhouse. Right. And it's the app that's uh, what I call a audio podcast, pretty much. That's what I mean. Everybody can participate. That's that's the thing. So, and what I like about it, I think it's, I don't know if it's every Friday, but the founders have a town hall where all the users have the opportunity to give feedback on what features they like, what they didn't like, ask questions, why this worked this way, why did you do and I'm just marveled at it. I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> and they addressed it at that time. And I'm like, if everyone could do that. But what was interesting, what, I, what I'm bringing that up is that the users were in there to do that. So 
So they, they, it was like, provide me a forum and I'll come. And I don't know if it's because people can't really see them other than their face. And then you just hear their voice. And so they're great with that. That could be it. But they were able to get that. And I think so from a user, you should be thinking about, does this work for me? Does this work for my kid? Does this work for my friend? And if it doesn't, you should be able to find a way to provide that feedback. And I, and I honestly think also users, if they don't pay for it, impact change no matter what. I'm not going to buy this because it does not, it discriminates against me or I'm not going to use this. That in itself, you have to hit the bottom line. You know, you got to hit that bottom number in some kind of way for sometimes change. So yes, private sector has the ability to impact, but in, in doing that, you sometimes have to impact private sector and letting them know money is where it's going to get hit if you don't improve your practice. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to see I'm a lefty. I was into engineering. I went to this class called Science, Technology, and Society. And they talked about how technology actually excludes lefties, right? And so I'm a lefty with everyone in my family that's right. So my immediate family is right. My parents are, I I blame them on anything I do right. Because <laughs> like with my hand, my right hand, because they are right-handers, right? So sport-wise, I probably lean towards the right because they don't know how to teach a lefty. But I was so interested in that piece and like, how do we design for all? And so from there, my grandmother had diabetes. So finished school, went to engineer, uh, went to work for the National Academies of Engineering, uh, did some work there. And then I decided I wanted to go back to, and then went to National Science Foundation, met a professor there And she was, and that was for me to pretty much look at how we can improve our engineering curriculum is why I was there. So I was a science education analyst and I met someone there, Dr. Wofford, and she was at Virginia Tech and she overheard me saying, I want to go back to school. And one of the reasons I want to go back to school is my grandmother had diabetes and she couldn't use her blood glucose monitor. And I was like, Okay. So first I had the lefty issue. Now it's like technology that's supposed to help you and you can't use it. And so um, Dr. Walker uh, said, you get into Virginia Tech, I'll pay for your master's. Like, you know, I was like, well, I can do that. I think I can. <laughs> and so I applied and I got in and I worked under the advisement of Dr. Tanya Smith-Jackson. And I looked and I said, Tanya, we need to look at the design of technology and look at it from an aging and ethnicity perspective. And I ran a study where I had people who had diabetes come in and have them show me how they were using it, did a product interactive focus group, tried to understand how they were using, what were their issues, what they thought certain letters were. I mean, in the Black community, they don't say diabetes as much. They say, I have sugar. As you get older, they be like, I have sugar. And I'm like, these are the words and terminologies that differ by, you know, race. And we found that there was differences. And so from there, I said, okay, I want to take this to another level. And I want to really focus on, so I decided to stay in health systems engineering. I got my master's in health systems engineering. And I was there and I decided, okay, I want to stay for a PhD. But now what I want to do is talk about aging in place. So I've always been about inclusiveness, right? And I'm like, now we're moving to aging in place. What does that look like? How does the technology need to work? How do we help our our older population 
stay in place and not have to go to a home and things and, and really own. And so for my dissertation, I focused on tech security and privacy as we're moving technology into the home and really understanding private and public areas in the home and what older people, how they collect information outside and within the home and what type of controls we have to design to maintain their privacy. And so I found these different things. But the entire time when I look back, I was like, I've always been on this track about inclusiveness. Um, I've also included Kalta Seymour. At the time of the interview, she was the national channel manager um, in the industrial control division. And since then, she has become the chief diversity officer. Um, so we're going to get her back um, and have her come and talk about some of the things she's doing. However, I thought you might enjoy some snippets from her as well. Yeah, another great question. So even just as a company, right, our mission is to improve the quality of life and the environment through the use of power management technologies and services. So we provide sustainable solutions that help our customers effectively manage electrical, hydraulic, and mechanical power and in a safe way and an efficient way and also very reliably. So uh, we're, we're a large corporation. I like to say Eaton's like the undercover Fortune 500 company you've never heard about because our revenues were almost $22 billion last year. And we're in over 175 countries with over 90,000 employees. So a very neat company that I had the privilege to get exposed to um, kind of as I was finishing up my MBA. And, you know, one of the things that, that was really exciting for me to work for a company like Eaton is the commitment to diverse work experiences and diversity of thought. I was brought into the company through their global leadership development program uh, for MBA graduates. I was one of six uh, from the class of 2018 coming in in 16. And um, it provided an opportunity to work in two different divisions of the company for one year, right? And so when you're coming somewhere for one year, you're an individual contributor, you're leading without influence, you've got to get, you got to get work done. And I think if it wasn't a culture where diverse experiences and the inclusiveness of working well with the people that you have on your team, it'd probably be hard, right, to, to have results in a year. And so I even really surprised myself in the couple of years of that program because I was just overly astonished at how well IND is woven all through the DNA of the company, right, from the person that's welding some of our products up into our CEO. You know, there's a strong commitment and that commitment really is around the aspirational goal that Eaton has to be a model of inclusion and diversity in our industry. And, you know, as we aspire to do that, you know, um, it's from the way we welcome people to the table. You know, we include people by listening to what they have to offer. And we've created an environment where all employees have an opportunity to be their best. And what I love about Eaton is that when I come to work every day, I can be my whole self. I don't have to be somebody else. I don't have to change the way my thought process is. Um, I don't have to hide any interest that maybe I have that I'm worried that may not be accepted. It is a place where you really can bring your whole self to work. So I, again, I just am so blessed to work for a company that sees our performance and our standards essential to you know, our inclusion and diversity commitment. That's fantastic. I mean, I love that quote, you know, you can, you can volunteer with and, and some of the boards that I sit on, but 
how do we go beyond the numbers? Because we can we can run our data about the women that we have, the LGBT people, uh, folks that you know that identify, uh, people that are disabled, people that are you know Latino background. And we can run the numbers, but we should really be challenging ourselves to dig a little bit deeper, right? Get even more transparent, so we know where the gaps are. If we, and this is not just to eat, and this is really any organization and company, right? If you look at your attrition rates, right? And yep. if you look at everything from your salary bands, are you losing, you know, women in the lower salary bands? Are you losing women in the higher salary bands? Are you, you know, there's so much that we can look at, but we have to go a little bit deeper than just our race and gender numbers. And so um, it's been neat to kind of see through the cultivation of IND being in the DNA of the people that work at Eaton, you know, that's starting to get better. And our, but our division also said our president, you know, but we, he says, we can improve. And we, he says, we've made some great gains, but we have a long way to go. And it's nice to know that your division, your company is committed to the IND mission. It's not just a statement that's on a website, but we're actually doing the things to get there. So it's nice to be involved and to have those open conversations and to know you know, what are our goals and aspirations moving forward, especially knowing the statistics that we've been talking about over the last year and how are we going to get there and how do we continue to press on? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, just some great things going on at Eaton, which is fantastic because, you know, if you haven't, if you haven't been exposed, right, to the different, you know, cultures and the different thought processes, and I think that's what kind of neat about growing up internationally because you do have a little bit different that's what's cultivated, right? And encouraged and um, and you're around that. And and when you're not around that environment, you know what? You can put yourself in that environment. It's all about learning. I mean, I'm such a nerd and and I think if I wasn't so curious, maybe I wouldn't have traveled to places like Estonia where so, you know, people wanted to touch my hair and touch my skin because they've only seen black people on TV. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. You know, but that was a, I had an opportunity to be part of a learning and cultural experience. It wasn't offensive to me at all because I'm in an environment where um, the people I was with had never seen a live black person, you know, and that's okay. Make it a learning experience, make it fun, you know? So I think there's a way for us to just, dis- I'm, I'm a little bit of a disruptor. So um, and I find when you disrupt, you get change, right? And you can Absolutely. move forward, you know, into yeah. the goals and, and, and the uh, initiatives that you want. Well, and I love that you talk about. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, you know, I'm always looking for new followers. Please refer to your friends and hit subscribe. I really appreciate your support. Make it a great day. Choose diversity, create inclusion, and achieve excellence. Thanks for joining me on the Jolly Podcast. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. See you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.